we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center, and we're going to talk about H-1B visas today. This gets a lot of attention in the media because it's mainly, not exclusively, but mainly people in IT. It's a work visa, supposedly temporary, but in many cases, not temporary, for people in information technology, computer programming, that kind of thing. And because of that, it frankly, I think, gets more attention than other work visas programs that are just as bad. But it is pretty important. And we have two people who know a lot about this to talk about it. David North, a fellow at the center, has been doing immigration policy and actually specifically the H visa program, at least familiarized with it and work with it for not just years, not even just decades, but generations. He tells me his first interaction with the H visa program was 64 years ago. So I don't think there's anybody else who's worked on this longer. And then our other guest is Kevin Lin, who runs several organizations. U.S. Tech Workers is the one that's relevant here. And I'll let him give a plug and links and what have you for people who want to get in touch with him. But let's start with David, who's going to give us a little bit of history of where this, what is now the H-1B program, where it started, how it evolved, what's the history of it. David? I think it's older than than my contact (laughs) with it, but I first came in touch with it in 1959. At that point, I was about 30 and was employed in a mid-level political appointee in the New Jersey Employment Service. And I learned that a large company in our state, Engelhart Minerals, wanted to bring in a new CEO from South Africa. The candidate was the president of the Engelhart subsidy subsidiary there. Mr. Engelhart, perhaps the richest Democrat in the state and a chum of the governor, was involved in this and very much wanted this to happen. As to the request for the H-1 visa, two things became evident quickly. There were very few people in the states, if any, with any knowledge of running a platinum company. Not a gold company, that's fairly common, but a platinum company. And Mr. Engelhart's candidate was highly qualified. And at the then stunning salary of $100,000 a year, this man would not be depressing any New Jersey labor market. I was then paid $8,900 a year. So that was the program in stage one. It was small and either harmless or helpful, and it was used only in unusual circumstances. And so the number of people who got these work visas back then, this is during the Eisenhower administration, was very small, is basically the point, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It was small and obscure, and it was used for, you know, individual people like this. Right. Now, 
let's fast forward to uh, what I will call stage two of the program, which has um, held forth for a number of years until quite recently. At that point, the program had been discovered by industry, particularly the high-tech firms and labor brokers, typically from India. They used it extensively to bring in workers with routine skills, such as computer programmers, and they used it to lower wages, both for those people and for people who were competing with them. There are ceilings set on the numbers that they can bring in, and the ceilings are routinely exceeded. So the Department of Homeland Security has to run a lottery, or they have decided to run a lottery. They could do this by, by wages, which would be much better. There are, in fact, two lotteries. First, for people with advanced degrees, that's 20,000 slots. And then another one was 65,000 slots for those who didn't make it with advanced degrees and also for candidates that have bachelor's degrees. So there's 85,000 slot ceiling. And that's been true every year and it's going to be true this spring as well, which is something um, Kevin will be talking about. The H-1B visa is for three years, automatically renewed for another three years, and many visa holders get further extensions as they were put into the long holding lines for green cards. My sense is there were at stage two of the H-1B program as many as 600,000 to 800,000 H-1Bs in the country at any one time. And all of this time, every year, every spring, there's this new new lottery. We're now at the stage three of the program with the same 85,000 slots a year, plus another 15,000 or so for universities and nonprofits that have no ceilings. But things have changed on the ground, as Kevin is about to explain. So and just to be clear for listeners before Kevin takes it up, your sort of framework of, you know, stage one, two, and three of the program is more sort of a historical gloss you're putting on. In other words, it was very small and obscure at first, and now it's become something very different from what it was That's originally. That's right. That's exactly right. right. So, Kevin, what's the story now with H-1B program? You know, it's amazing. Last year, companies that have fired more than 85,000 people, they've brought on 34,000 H-1B workers in 2022. There doesn't seem to be any abatement this year in the number of LCA applications. We'll know more when we see the approved applications. That's the labor condition application. That's the labor that condition you send application. To the Labor Department, that's kind of the prerequisite for applying for an H-1B visa. Correct? Cor- that's absolutely correct, Mark. Thank you for that. Right. So they basically notified they want a few hundred thousand workers. Now, as David rightly pointed out, they'll get roughly 65 plus another 20, 85,000 plus another 10,000, 15,000 for universities that aren't part of the cap. And the thing is this, as David said, what's happening on the ground has changed. Companies have been laying workers off, specifically tech worker, white collar workers. And the latest rounds of cuts aren't just support type people. These are actual people working in technology. And what we're seeing is something we've known for a long time. These companies have, they've had these inflated market caps. You know, they love to please Wall Street. You know, their market cap keeps going up. So they keep growing the headcount. 
And what we're seeing, in particular with Elon Musk at Twitter, he was amazed by how many, he called them useless feeders, are out there on the payroll. And just to be clear, he let go something like three quarters of the entire workforce at Twitter when he took over, right? Absolutely. Maybe, maybe he was following the old 80-20 rule right. on that one. And it still functions. Everybody was saying, oh my God, the company's, you know, Twitter's going to stop working and it didn't stop working. Right. And so what they're able to do with the H-1B visa program, and let's make a couple of things very clear from the start. Number one, these are not high-skilled workers. They are, in fact, very ordinary workers. If they were high-skilled, the Americans they displaced to places like Disney, Abbott Labs, Northeast Utilities, SoCal Edison, many others, they wouldn't have had to train their replacements. Uh, in the case of Northeast Utilities, that transition was supposed to last six months. It ended up lasting more than a year because the people weren't qualified, the H-1B visa holders. And the way they're able to do this and get over the country of origin discrimination is what these companies will do, like a Disney, is they will contract with a company, a consulting firm. It could be an Ernst & Young, a Capgemini, a Tata Consultancy Services and Emphasis. And these are what are labeled H-1B visa dependent companies. More than 15% of their workforce are H-1B visa holders. So what they'll do is they'll contract with the company and say, look, we will outsource all your IT operations. And unfortunately, there's a willing audience. The consulting firms make a lot of money on labor arbitrage, what they charge for that worker and what they're getting paid. Companies like it because they're able to reduce, one, their headcount, their actual employees, so they don't have to pay all the benefits and deal with the retirements, right. things like that. And they know this enterprise is being carried off for a lot less. And so just to be clear, what we're talking about here is American companies laying off their American IT workers who then have to train their H-1B replacements, who frankly don't know, the, know what they're doing half the time. And then they do the IT work that the Americans done. It, it is literally replacing American workers. Right. And that's actually the first link in the chain. Ultimately, these jobs will be offshored to a low-rent country like India. So those jobs that were showing up in America will never right. show up here again. I just wanted to get David in here and you, Kevin, if you wanted to jump in, but there kind of are two ways H-1B visas are used, right? In other words, it's not formally in two categories or two lanes, but some people with H-1B visas are coming here specifically for the purpose of staying here permanently. In other words, they're using it as a stepping stone to a green card. And then there are other people who are used by some of these staffing companies where they actually might be sent back home. The point is, it's almost like knowledge transfer, then they actually go back to India. So in other words, there's both kinds of H-1Bs. Is that correct? That's exactly right. And there's some other nuances involved too. The direct hires in the system, which is one of the ones that you just pointed out, tend to be better paid than the ones that are coming in working for the labor brokers. So these would be the people that Intel actually employs and they get their paycheck from Intel, for instance, right. as opposed to the ones who are working at Intel or wherever, but their paycheck says Tata Consultancy or whatever the manpower staffing company is that 
nominally employs them. That's right. Now, meanwhile, these the labor brokers that you just mentioned, Tata, for instance, uh, emphasis, are almost exclusively Indian in origin. Right. And so we, what we have is uh, not only when these labor brokerage firms are used, but also uh, when people are hired directly, we have the whole hiring structure in the hands of somebody else. And the somebody else is essentially um, people from India. Right. One of the sad byproducts of all of this is that the biases and prejudices of the Hindu world, these are all practically all Hindus, there are very few Muslims involved, have been brought to the United States and reinforced by these people. Mm-hmm. So even now we have a investigation going on in California about the way that uh, higher caste Indians in the hierarchy of, of this system are discriminating against what used to be called the untouchables. They're called Dalits now, D-A-L-I-T-S. In other words, fellow Indians, but who were lower down on the caste Yeah, hierarchy. at the bottom is as a matter right. of the caste right. structure. And there's also been national origin discrimination. In other words, apart from this, there's been oh, yeah. Indians oh, yeah. hiring other Indians and not considering Americans, that kind of thing. And that's been in the courts and stuff in various instances, right? Right. Well, it's not only Indians hiring Indians. It's people from the southern part of India, Hindus from the southern part of India, hiring young males. You know, we don't have a bunch of people from Bangladesh or uh, Pakistan in this program. We don't have very many women. It's bias within bias within bias. And so that's just another unfortunate aspect of it. So, Kevin, this issue of direct hire people working for the actual big companies who are better paid and are somewhat less exploited, as opposed to the ones working for these staffing companies, that distinction is something that Norm Matloff, who's a professor at UC Davis, an expert in this area, he calls Intel versus Infosys. And his point is Infosys using these is bad, but frankly, Intel and its ilk using them is also bad. What's kind of the issue there? Because they are slightly different issues, both for the workers themselves and for the economy, right? Right. They are different issues. And as David had mentioned earlier, there's always this nuance in the background. So let me, through real-world examples, kind of give an example. Let's talk about direct hire. I and Roger Ross, who's a director of policy, had a long phone conversation with someone from a Fortune 100 company. And they do direct hires from India, and they are a technology company. So they have, we call it a farm team in India. Now, to get onto that farm team in India, you have to be a hyper-aggressive male. Now, to go from the farm team to the United States, you have to be a hyper-hyper-hyper-aggressive male. And unfortunately, what this has led to, and I'd love to get David's thoughts on this too, is that you've created a tribal, it's not a meritocracy in many of these companies anymore. You know, these people that come over, again, they're hyper-aggressive. They're hiring their own. They're not looking at the rest of the world. They're not looking at even the best interests of the company, as this was described by me. What they're looking at is, how can I grow out my position here in this company? And this is what they've been doing. That's kind of how I've been seeing the direct hire model work. Now, you look at the indirect. 
Now, both Indirectly of them. Meaning the staffing companies. The staffing company. Now, everyone working at a staffing company knows why they are here. They're here because they're cheap, exploitable labor. When we have had conversations with people, it's like, look, why don't you work with us to get the prevailing wage up? No interest. Again, they know why they're here. And this gets to one of the big issues that's unique to the H-1B visa, and that is this dual intent status. This is not a work-only visa. So someone can come here and they're working for a company. That company, not them, can decide to sponsor them for a green card. So the dual intent thing, just to be clear for listeners, it's the visa is a so-called non-immigrant visa, which means it's supposed to be temporary, like a tourist visa, student visa, that kind of thing. But in the law, there is this what you call dual intent, this sort of Orwellian provision. Frankly, immigration law, the whole thing is Orwellian. But that says the visa can both be at the same time temporary and permanent. It's like Schrodinger's visa. Exactly. And this is why we're seeing these huge backlogs. Because, you know, again, 74, 75% of the people that subscribe to the H-1B visa come from one country, and that's India. So they've been here for three years. And then, as David mentioned, they'll get an extension probably for another three years. And in that time, the company may decide to say, okay, we'll sponsor you for a green card to stay permanently. Now, if you're from any country but India, this is a one to two year process where you'll apply for your green card, get accepted, and you're on your pathway to citizenship. For the case of India, because there's so many Indians, it runs against the country cap limitations that were imposed with the Immigration Reform Act of 1965. So we have this large backlog of Indians waiting to get a green card, maybe 10, 15, 20 uh, And the years. reason for that, again, to clarify to people, is that the country cap thing you mentioned is to prevent any one country from taking over the whole immigration flow. And so you have more people than the pipeline can accommodate, so they end up waiting in line. Right, because prior to 1965, the majority of people, like my mother who came to the United States, came from Northern Europe. So the idea was that we would make it more equal and fair. So we'll give no country will be allowed to dominate. And this has been an issue with, again and again, we've been fighting these really awful bills that have been trying to get rid of these country caps to clear the backlog without doing anything to end the dual intent status, without doing anything to protect Americans who are definitely on the receiving end because wages in STEM science, technology, engineering, math, particularly computer science, have been stagnant for years. And if there was a shortage, as these companies claim there is, of talent, you would see wages rising to attract the talent. And it's not. So what they're doing is they've basically said, okay, we've accepted an amount of breakage in the system. We've accepted an amount of innovation that isn't going to happen because we're going to keep our monopsony and we're going to keep the status quo. And I'll give you a great real world example of this. I was speaking with the director of a manufacturing company that makes high-end printers, things like that. And he said, look, Kev, I expected to get a lot of pushback from him. When you were arguing against H-1Bs. Correct. 
And he said, look, it's like this. If I go to our folks in India or H-1Bs here and I say, do exactly this, they will do exactly that and they'll do it really well. But if I come to them with a problem and saying, hey, can you solve this? Crickets. Whereas the rest of the world, someone will come back in a couple of weeks and go, hey, I, let's spitball this. So we're losing out on innovation. I mean, anyone who's gone through a long phone tree to get on customer support knows the trouble we're having there. And so let me get David back in. David, Kevin's referred to some of the problems with H-1Bs. Obviously, it's exploiting the, in many cases, the H-1Bs themselves, but it's also replacing American workers. What are the other problems with this? Because, you know, the H-1B visa is sold by lobbyists as this great, best and brightest thing and we can't survive without it and America will fall behind and all the rest of it. What's, you know, what's the problem with this visa? Well, H-1B workers, by definition, are much more exploitable than Americans. Now, there are several reward, non-reward situations in this thing. If they let you in, if they give you a H-1B visa, you want to keep that. Because the alternative is going back to India and having your salary reduced fairly substantially. Mm-hmm. As long as the H-1B visa is is something that can be renewed, then you're um, subservient because you want it to be renewed. And then once it gets renewed, you want the green card. You want to move on to the next step. Again, you're at the mercy of your employer, who in general takes advantage of, of workers to get them to do lots of work at fairly minimal wages for the computer industry. So you've got a It's a quasi-indentured servitude almost, right? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So, Kevin, I want to ask both of you guys about what some reforms, what can we do about this? But I wanted to ask you a specific question, Kevin, on this offshoring issue. Clearly, the visas often used to bring people from India, then they learn how to run Disney's or somebody else's IT. What do they do? how it works, and then they all go back to India and do the work there for the contractor that Disney has hired, and the contractor can pay them, you know, whatever. I mean, it's probably not $10 a day, but it's not what they're paying them here. Wouldn't that offshoring be happening anyway? In other words, does the H-1B visa actually do anything in that scenario that wouldn't be happening anyway? What the H-1B visa does, it's it's a facilitator to the offshoring. Because the knowledge transfer is done mm-hmm. here in the U.S. with that U.S. worker. And they have a year or two to, to work out the bugs. For instance, in the case of Northeast Utilities, the firm that initially came in to do the outsourcing, they had to fire. Then they brought on another, fired that one. And then they had to fire that. They had to bring like on another. Python Absolutely. Skin. So, and again, we're still early on in this. I love that. One website, Zero Hedge, because they see something on a long enough timeline, everything goes to zero. We haven't seen the real consequences of this. You know, we should have learned in COVID that when you offshore your manufacturing and you have supply chain issues, you're going to run into issues. Mark and David, all of our financial data, our insurance data, it is all being accessed by people overseas. The U.S. government does the same thing. They bring in contracting companies that bring in H-1B visas. I've been in a government office 
were when I was walking through, they said, don't take any photos, just walk through with me and walk out. It was all Indians and they're all on the phone. I'm like, are they goofing off? He says, no, 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 they're not goofing off. Their code writing skills are so bad. The guys in India are on their machines writing Telling them what to do, basically. Interesting. Wow. I mean, this is going to come back to haunt us, I believe, in the worst of ways. It has made us far less secure in in so So many ways. So we have Americans, health and medical information is basically abroad now, banking information, all of that? Absolutely. I mean, some of that could happen anyway, but H-1B is facilitating it and accelerating it because it's permitted. Oh, sure. Like our biggest insurance companies, what they've been doing is bringing in these H-1B visa-dependent companies, and they've been doing the knowledge transfer and then pushing the American workers onto the more obsolete legacy systems. And it's only the H-1B workers that are getting trained on all the latest technologies and systems. And this is happening everywhere. And it's how they obsolete the Americans. So where there's this notion that, wow, we can't find enough Americans that can code, which is absolute rubbish. So basically, I mean, it's interesting that you brought up the supply chain issue because this is basically a data supply chain issue. In other words, instead of... Interesting term. Yeah, yeah. Instead of the masks or ingredients for antibiotics or other things that we found during COVID or even, you know, manufacturing stuff. This is sort of a data supply chain issue. I hadn't really hadn't thought of it that way, but that is a potentially a serious vulnerability. You know, a while back, I did a incognito interview with someone who was a building inspector in Los Angeles. So were you incognito or the inspector? The inspector was. <laughs> we had his, voice, his face masked and everything. And he was telling us how the problem is for Americans to start in the trades, which used to be really good middle-class, upper-middle-class income, you have to start somewhere. You start pushing a broom. Right. And from there, you start, like one guy said, look, this is how I learned to cut tile, and now that's what I do. But I'm being forced out by the immigrants because I can't compete on price. And we're seeing that. It just seems to be happening. That same dynamic is here. Interesting. Sort of the white-collar version of that. Yeah. And I saw that play out in real world. Prior to running the nonprofit, I used to do uh, state and local taxation. And I worked for one of the big firms, and I was working for one of the, another large firm. And I was at a conference, and a woman from Deloitte and Touche had just gotten back from India, where they had set up a center that was going to outsource the property tax return. So if you're a large company and you're in multiple states, jurisdictions, Some of them, they tax your personal property. Some they don't. You had to figure all that out. And usually if you graduate from college with a degree in accounting and you go into tax, the first thing you're given is the return to do because you're going to learn taxability of everything. And after 10 years, you might gravitate into tax provisioning and then later tax planning. Almost like becoming a journeyman. Carpenter, sort of, in other words, from an apprentice to a journeyman. Precisely. And unfortunately, when you outsource that function, you knock out that bottom rung. Interesting, interesting. And I think the same thing is happening with technology across the board. I hadn't really thought of it that way. Okay, David, and then I'll come back to you, Kevin. David, what do we do about this? One thing we could do is just abolish the H-1B visa, but, you know, short of that, what kind of reforms could make H1, the H-1B program less harmful? The thing that I would like more than anything else, 
and the thing that I think is quite sensible is that you run the program, not run a lottery, but you will bring in the 85,000 people whose salaries are the largest in terms of the competition. Right. So that this would boost salaries, and boosting salaries would tend to open up a few more jobs, I think, for citizens and green cards. And I think that's the best single thing. And the Biden administration doesn't like it, and so we don't have it. And under the Trump administration, I think they had started the process for a yeah, rule they, to they do had, just right. that, right? And a rule change. Got yeah. Changed when um, Trump no longer was president. And one of the things, interestingly, about that is that the way the lottery works now, and you've pointed this out, companies ask for or apply for way oh, more H 1B visas than they need. Yeah, three to one. You know, basically because it's a lottery. They figure, well, okay, well, they'll maybe get one out of three. If you do it by salary, it becomes much more predictable and also much less unfair to small companies who want one H-1B. There's one guy they want. Well, they can't submit, you know, 40 applications. They just want this one guy. And if they're willing to pay him enough, then they'd have a much better chance of actually getting a reason. And that's absolutely true. Right. So, Kevin, should we be just be cutting the cap? I mean, there is a cap. Why not just reduce the cap? Right. Let's go back and I'd like to continue down this rabbit hole of okay. what, what can and should be done and has been done. Because in addition to Trump kind of, you know, with a rule change, getting rid of the lottery and basically saying, if you want to be first in line to get an H-1B, you're going to have to pay the highest salary. Because right. that created a virtual cycle where it wasn't the typical tech worker who's pretty ordinary, their jobs weren't going to be endangered. And companies, if they really needed that high-end talent, they'd be able to access it. Mm -hmm. They just had to- Basically, they prove it. They prove that they need the person by the amount of money they're offering. Correct. Basically. Right. And because that kind of gets into what you were saying earlier. I remember I was at one of your events, Mark, and Francis Cisna was talking. And he said the way it He's should- the former this, head of USCIS. Right. And he said the way the system should work is, again, let's just say- you're a company and you're at a college work fair and you have this student and you're talking was like, oh my God, this is someone we want to have work for us. You should be able to apply for an H-1B visa and bring them on because you've isolated this particular individual. It's right. not a lottery. Well, there were two other things that Trump did that not ended H-1B, but it would have completely defanged it. The other one was raising the prevailing wages to where they were more competitive. And the other one was really looking at what they call the specialty occupation, what they could file a labor condition application on. They were going to get rid of the lower hanging ones like quality analysis, things like that. Oh, I see. In other words, the kinds of jobs that you could apply for an H-1B for. Correct. Okay. So, you know, as David mentioned, the Biden administration, no interest. So some they just let expire. Others, there were lawsuits from the usual players, universities, chambers of commerce, and they would just sue and fold. So these really effective changes never happen. Right, right. Well, maybe uh, in another administration or another Congress, conceivably, uh, we might see that because some of these changes could be put in statute and that would make them harder to undo. You'd have less of this ping pong between different administrations where they undo everything the previous administration did, as we've seen. Okay, any last thoughts, David? Yes. My last thought is it would be helpful if the American workers so concerned join unions. 
and raise hell uh, as they have not done. And right. I can't quite understand that. I mean, there is perhaps a class bias of some kind that uh, these high-tech people uh, don't think that they should be represented by uh, a union, and they would apparently prefer to be kicked around. And I find that tragic, and that's another way of, of approaching the problem. David North is a CIS fellow. His work is all available at our website, cis.org. Kevin Lynn, I'm going to let you, Kevin, say what you want to say, but one of the things you're trying to do is to actually get tech workers to raise hell, as David said, not through a labor union in the traditional sense, but at least through some kind of activism. So if you could just quickly say what it is that you do, what's the organization, how can people get in touch with it? I want to pick up a little bit on what David said, because he's absolutely right about being able to work collectively with the union. The one company that we were successful with in pushing back against one of these offshoring outsourcing schemes Mm -hmm. was the Tennessee Valley Authority. Right, right. And I believe, David and Mark, that we were effective because they were unionized. I mean, without us, I don't think they'd have been successful. It was also a quasi-government organization. So you ran an ad in Washington directed at one person, President Trump, saying that the head of it was making more money than he was (laughs) and that they were offshoring all of their IT people. And that had the desired effect, got the attention and- People were not laid off. They weren't. He fired the chairman, fired one of the board members. So what's the group if people are interested in this? What is it? Where should they find out more about you? USTechWorkers.com. That's Mm -hmm. the best place to go. Now, we're doing a lot of rebranding and changing. Our parent organization will be called the Institute for Sound Public Policy. And under that, we will have the Project for Immigration Reform. And under that, US Tech Workers... Doctors Without Jobs, which we which talked about. Which we had about. a podcast on that, yeah. Yeah. Last year, I think. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Okay, good. So, USTechWorkers.com. Com. Okay. Excellent. Thank you, David and David North, and thank you, Kevin Lynn. And we will be talking about this issue because H-1B doesn't go away, so we'll probably have you back at some point in the future when something else happens, as it inevitably will. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for, for having us. Thanks for having me, Mark. Kevin and David gave us a roundup, a kind of background on what's going on with H-1B issue, which is really pretty important numerically. It's either the biggest or the second biggest guest worker program. It has serious impact on the economy and not even just the economy, but even security because it distorts the development of the tech industry and the training of our Americans to work in the tech industry. It really has significant consequences. One of the things that's happened recently is that, well, this isn't recent, there's been a lawsuit going on for many years against the OPT program, which the so-called optional practical training, which is a feeder into the H-1B program. And what it does, what OPT does, is it basically pretends that foreign students who aren't students anymore, who've graduated, are still students. They're still under a student visa, but basically it just turns it into a you know, it's a work program and you can work up to three years after graduation masquerading as a student if you studied in a STEM field. And this is a feeder for H-1B and it's subsidized because since you're nominally a student, you don't have to pay and your employer doesn't have to pay payroll taxes. So it really is subsidizing 
the displacement of American tech workers. And the lawsuit's been going on for years. This is almost like some Charles Dickens novel where Bleak House, where a lawsuit went on for generations. It's not quite that bad, but it's pretty bad. And what's happened now is that the plaintiffs, which are American tech workers, suing because they claim, and I think uh, I think it's almost obviously true, that the OPT program has no statutory basis. It's just made up by first the uh, Bush administration, George W. Bush administration. Then it was expanded under Obama, and it was not eliminated under Trump, which it could have been because it's purely a regulatory creation. So anyway, that lawsuit, the plaintiffs lost at the circuit court level, the appeals level, and they have filed a petition for cert, which is to say they filed to ask the Supreme Court to take the case up. And you know it's unlikely because the Supreme Court gets huge numbers of requests to take up cases that have been lost on appeal, but it's at least possible that they will do so. And I think it's going to be a while yet before word comes down whether or not they're going to hear the case. That'll be the next big thing in the H-1B kind of adjacent issue since OPT is de facto part of the H-1B program, even though not legally speaking. That's it for this week's episode of Parsing Immigration Policy. This is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center, and I hope you'll tune in next week. Thank you. <music>